Tell me who killed her. Tell me. You say you want to know, but do you? I want to know the truth. There are consequences. What choice do I have? Tell me all of the story. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love her. And it's time for Kill Me Cast. Yeah, it's time for Kill Me Cast. Welcome to Kill Me Cast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals listening out there to a new episode of Kilmer Cast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly charming American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Twixt, a 2011 horror question mark film courtesy of one Francis Ford Coppola. Joining us to chat about the film and Kilmer's role in it is a film critic and the co-host of the critically acclaimed network of podcasts, which includes a personal favorite, canceled too soon. Let's welcome Whitney Seibold. How are you doing today, Whitney? Oh, doing just fine. Thanks. Uh, thanks for letting me join in. A little uh, doing a little handiwork here, and I'd just love to talk about some Val Kilmer, <laughs> especially some very unusual Val Kilmer here in Twixt for sure. Oh, that this is maybe one of the weirdest. <laughs> Boy, howdy, oh golly! So, uh, for the limited few who don't know about the wide-ranging, critically acclaimed network, can you fill people in? Uh, sure. The Critically Acclaimed Network, it's a network of podcasts that I uh, do with one Mr. William Viviani. Uh, we have an entire slew of podcasts, I suppose the main of which is Critically Acclaimed. It's our film review podcast. We also have Canceled Too Soon, where we talk about TV shows that lasted one season or less. We talk about uh, Star Trek on one podcast. We talk about the old 1960s Batman TV series on one podcast. Throw a rock, we have a podcast about that. But yeah, uh, we're, we're uh, building our brand, as it were, and you can always find us just constantly, constantly podcasting about whatever topic you like. And uh, here I am to talk about uh, Val Kilmer, because I haven't talked about enough films yet this week. <laughs> you know, some people say that the idea of doing a series about Val Kilmer was enough to say, you know, maybe you don't do that. Has there been an idea that you've t- thought about for doing for your network that you said, you know, that maybe is not going to work? Um, gosh, there's there's been a couple. I wanted to start a podcast called Your Daily Criterion, where we were going to do a daily five-minute lecture on a film in the Criterion collection. Hmm. Uh, I once had an idea to do a review series of nothing but films that were over five hours in length. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. No one's going to go for that. Uh, and, and golly, we've had plenty of bad ideas this time. <laughs> so today we're talking about Twixt, but I was curious, what's your favorite Val Kilmer film? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not this one. It, no, it's not this one. Uh, and the answer is very easy. The answer is top secret. Mm, a fa- classic. Top secret where not only do we get one of the best comedies of the 1980s, but I think we also get peak Val Kilmer in a lot of ways. I agree. It's where he is unironically charming, undeniably funny, and just at, at the height of his acting game in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the idea that that's his first film is insane. That that's right out the gate. Yeah, yeah. Like you know who he is. It's it's only it wouldn't be until later that he started taking himself too seriously as like an actor. Mm, Juilliard. <laughs> Before we dive into the world of Twixt, let's go back in time. Gather round. As we put Kilmer in context. 
So Twixt never received a uh, general release in theaters, but it made its debut at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 11th, 2011. Obviously, that's the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, but around the world, there was even much more going on. Occupy Wall Street protest kicked off in Zuccotti Park in New York City. That's right. Former French president uh, Jacques Chirac was on trial for embezzlement. You know, as is common for that time of year, the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast areas were being pummeled by storms. President Barack Obama kicked off his successful re-election campaign. And the Arab Spring uprising started in Egypt and Syria. So, uh, you know, history really seems to repeat itself, doesn't it? Uh, It repeats itself as it sort of saunters vaguely downwards, as it seems. Yes, very true. Very true. Looking at the entertainment landscape, the Billboard chart was led by Maroon 5's Moves Like Jagger, followed by Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO, and then Pumped Up Kicks from Foster Foster the People. Uh, Those are three pretty memorable tracks, if of varying quality, for sure. But number four on the chart completely escaped my attention. It was a song called Lighters by a group called Bad Meets Evil. Have you ever heard of this? Lighters. Yeah. No. Number four on the chart. I'm going to play a clip for you. All right. This one's for you and me, living out our dreams. We're all right where we should be. Lift my arms out wide, I open my eyes, and now all I want to see is a sky full of A sky full of By the time you hear this, I will have already spiraled up. I would never do nothing to let you cowards fuck my world up. If I was you, I would duck or get struck like lightning fighters. Keep fighting, put your lighters up, point them skyward. Uh. Does that ring any bells for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've always been kind of backward when it comes to popular music anyway. I, I usually find my way into pop music via... Uh, parody or conversation <laughs> rather than just sort of sitting and listening to the radio like a normal person. Uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, I would have thought the number four song though in the, in the country might've passed my way at some point. And especially since the voice you first heard was Bruno Mars. Oh, no kidding. And then the voice that followed him was Eminem. And, and it sold really well, evidently. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yet no real impact culturally, which I think back because of this series, we obviously, with Val Kilmer, we do a lot of 80s films where songs ha- hang around for decades. It's amazing how disposable music is as I move further into more recent films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, this is a little off topic, but I remember Richard Linklater complaining about that when he was making Boyhood, which was originally called 12 Years, uh, he was kind of looking forward to the way popular music and fashion was going to change over the course of 12 years. Mm. And right when he started making it back in around 2002, everything just sort of reached this weird holding pattern when it came to trends and fashion. Mm. Like clothes didn't, like what, what's sort of uh, the dominant fashion choice of the early 2000s you can't really point to one really no you don't have a bell bottoms or a plaid grunge look there's nothing that stands out yeah yeah and haircuts became really kind of plain i guess younger kids started uh, dying their hair like i remember elementary school kids finally started dying their hair around that time hmm. and i remember a hairdo with uh, it looks like a, a young boy was flying really fa- really fast to the left <laughs> all their hair swept in one direction 
that, that's like the one hairdo I can recall from that era. Yeah, the uh, Justin Bieber, I guess, would be the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely a time when everything was very down the middle, it felt like. Yeah, 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 for sure. So on television, we were already on our way into the lowest common denominator pits. <laughs> you know, of the top 10 shows watched in prime time, four were reality shows, three were NCIS series, including a spinoff of NCIS and a rerun of NCIS was in the top 10. Meanwhile, football took up one of the 10 slots. Really just a, a, just a mess of time. Network TV really had given up based on the competition they faced from prestige television on cable, I think. Yeah, here we are. Well, um, this is actually a fun backdoor into Coppola because I feel like technology was changing so fast that a lot of entertainment businesses were trying really hard to keep up. Mm. And unfortunately, they couldn't keep up with a material. They couldn't crack out important art that was taking advantage of that technology. They just had to be fast about it. And the best thing that they could produce quickly on a budget that would get a big audience is that reality show garbage. Mm. And as such, that's kind of where the culture ended up settling it's a real bummer and especially when cbs doesn't help matters by just throwing on very bland you know formulaic dramas and procedurals constantly every night of the week i mean those those are comfort food the 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 criminal justice system is represented by two equally separate yet equally important groups (laughs) oh the classics as as it always shall be So on the New York Times bestseller list, James Patterson led the way with one of his many co-written books, Kill Me If You Can, in its first week, while Dick Cheney was number one on the nonfiction list with his memoir, In My Life, making its debut. Personally, I'm not a James Patterson fan, so I'm not going to be checking that one out. And I can especially say I'm never going to be reading a Dick Cheney book. I was about to say, and I'm not a Dick Cheney fan, so I'm not reading those books. (laughs) Yeah, I, I really find as we get closer to current day that the the top of the charts is not a place where I find my reading material. Uh, no, and I, there's there's figures. Uh, if I may ask, are are you is your age somewhere around your mid thirties? I'm forty two. I am. I too am forty two. And as it turns out, there's actual figures on this. You stop paying attention to popular music when you're thirty three. Hmm. They actually scheduled it out. Like by the time you're thirty three, on average, you stop buying new records and you actually start kind of pursuing your own personal taste a little bit more strongly. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a time and a place when we had already pretty much surpassed paying attention to this sort of stuff. So <laughs> this is probably going to be really frustrating for some of your younger listeners who are, you know, were 16 at, at the time Twixt came out. Yeah, I guess that's why I keep finding songs and, and things that have no connection to me at all as I go through the, these episodes. So it's nice to get it once in a while that I find something that I'm like, oh yeah, I really remember and I love that. And it's usually the 80s. <laughs> Twix didn't hit U.S. theaters in any wide release. It earned just $647,000 in worldwide box office. And while it was making its festival premiere at the box office, people were watching Steven Soderbergh's uh, Contagion, which earned almost $30 million in its first week. And has obviously has recently, uh, well, not so much recently, but in the past six months has gained new relevance uh, for people watching movies. Well, to, to quote Contagion, the right bat at the right pig. <laughs> it was followed by The Help, uh, which was holding strong in its sixth week, which I don't think happens anymore. You have a film that holds strong for six weeks. And then the moderately successful launch of Tom Hardy's MMA film, Warrior. But then at number four, 
was a film that I have no memory of. It was The Debt. Do you remember that film? Oh, The Debt. Um, I, I remember it came out. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> it. It's very odd how it just really just slipped in there and disappeared because, I mean, it was a film uh, set in the 60s about three Mossad agents who crossed into East Berlin to apprehend a notorious Nazi war criminal. Oh, wait, wait, yeah, you know what? I reviewed The Debt. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it amazing how you spent all that time on a film, you know, because you had to spend time thinking about it and writing your review, and then it just goes away. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, and you know what, that, that's not a matter of time. Some films just sort of fall through your brain without hitting any synapses on the way down. I, I, I saw films earlier this year that I'm fighting to remember, so yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of weird because this film was written by Matthew Vaughn, no slouch there, directed by John Madden. And starred Helen Mirren and Jessica Chastain. As the same character, if I recall. Yeah. And so it's like, how did something like that just vanish from our memories, yet was big enough to be the number four film in America? Well, I guess uh, number four is, isn't, uh, isn't impressive enough to stay in, in the <laughs> cultural memory. I guess not. It was followed by uh, the Zoe Zaldana action film Columbiana, then uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and then another one that I have no memory of, Shark Knight 3D. Shark Knight 3D. Oh, golly. Uh, oh, oh, vaguely. Vaguely, I remember Shark Knight 3D. I did not see Shark Knight 3D. Yeah, I um, went back yeah. and I watched the trailer, and nothing about it stood out to me at all. I might have been in a short-term coma in September of 2011. <laughs> well, I remember being in New York uh, September of that year, and I got to sort of take, walk through and briefly take part of the Occupy Wall Street protests. Mm. But uh, yeah, I wasn't wasn't busy watching Shark Night. Um, <laughs> well, Shark Night is interesting because, and this also ties into Twixt. It it comes at that time right when 3D mm. was like booming and dying out simultaneously. Yeah, like some films were coming on 3D, then Avatar, which came out in 2009, like really started getting studios. Uh, running in terms of like repurposing and converting a lot of their existing films into 3d some films are being shot in 3d things like my bloody valentine and drive angry mm. and you can tell that and uh, movie theaters were charging different price points for the 3d and the 2d screenings yep. so you can tell that the studios thought they had this big cash cow that they could actually charge more for tickets if they released a 3d film yeah. and there was this little mini wave of 3d films that nobody paid attention to. <laughs> not a single critic, not a single audience member thought that these 3D films were going to be the way of the future. Yeah, I guess, you know, myself, I, I definitely jumped on because I bought a 3D television. Oh my goodness. And I have, I have a large selection of 3D films. Oh God, so you're the one, all right. I'm the one, I'm the guy. <laughs> and, but I have to say, I looked at my collection. I do not have Shark Knight in my collection. So even well, well, even me, I didn't support that one. <laughs> yeah, you got to get on it, man. You got to get Shark Knight. You got to get that classic. <laughs> I definitely have Drive Angry because that's a, that, that was a fun one yeah. you know, for what it was. <laughs> Wrapping up the top 10 was Our Idiot Brother, along with uh, another horror film, Apollo 18, and then Crazy Stupid Love, which was hanging around uh, at the number 10th spot. So that was what was going on while Twixt was suffering in festival viewings. <laughs> so let's get into the film. Everyone knows the writer and director of Twixt, obviously. The film was made by Francis Ford Coppola during a period where his filmmaking could 
mm, probably be described best as kids say, you do you. He made Tetro and Youth Without Youth during this time, working with DP Mihai Malamar Jr., and I probably butchered that name, so I apologize. They were all relatively low-budget films and very personal to Coppola. It was the first time he directed in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he had gone on this big, long hiatus. And um, I remember about when he started making movies again and making these kind of low-budget, super personal, kind of arty films arguably good Tetro and Youth Without Youth, but, you know, not classics. No. I remember hearing a lot of interviews with him, and Kobolus, like, seemed to be in a state of lamentation, not of his own career, but of the state of cinema and the way fantasy and special effects had taken over something uh, that he didn't want it to wanted to be taken over. Mm. He made a prediction a long time ago that film technology was going to advance in a really interesting way. CGI was going to come into its own in like really boom in this really important way. And it would lead to people like Francis Ford Coppola, a lot of auteurs and artists making whatever kind of stories they wanted things that were previously impossible, now you could all do in CG. And I think he didn't like that CG was used for just fantasy films. Mm. I think he would prefer that, you know, every filmmaker came out of the gate trying to make something like The Aviator using a lot of extensive special effects rather than something like, you know, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And you, you look at, you know, what he did with like Rumblefish and you see where he, this has been something he's been interested in a long time. I think the film world didn't go where he expected. And of course, you could also say that tying directly into that was uh, the fact that a lot that Hollywood started rejecting his films after a while. True. You know, some people say the Cotton Club was kind of the turning point for him, and that was in the mid-80s. The Godfather Part 3 is a piece of crap. <laughs> I mean, not to put point of point on it, but the Godfather Part 3 is kind of a piece of crap. Yeah, but we'll find out maybe it was not him. <laughs> you know, we'll find out what happens when this new version comes out. <laughs> so, um, I know Bram Stoker's Dracula has its fans. I hate Dracula. Oh, I no. It's, like, it, it, it's just overblown and bloated, and nobody's giving a good performance in that movie. <laughs> it's a pretty picture. It's Yes, some of, some of it's lovely to look at, and I appreciate that he tried to make it kind of weird. You know, we have a scene of Keanu Reeves squirting blood out of his nipples. <laughs> but, so, so, you know, I haven't seen that in a movie before. No, no, that's new. So, yeah, I appreciate that he's trying to do something at least kind of original with the Dracula material, but good God, is that hard, film hard to sit through. <laughs> it, it's definitely uh, an experience. And, you know, for me, I just love the way he used old-style FX in there um, to, yeah. to try to tell the story. For, uh, here's a fun story. I heard that Anthony Hopkins who plays Van Helsing in that movie, mm. uh, based his performance on Herbert Lom from the Pink Panther movies, who plays huh. Dreyfus. And in, in between scenes, would like practice his accent by saying, Clouseau, you fool. Clouseau, you fool. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well on the set. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> no, no, I'm getting into character. Clouseau, you fool. What character? <laughs> So here in Twixt, after a, uh, a nice retro American Zoetrope production logo, I really like that one, threw me right back. We dive into a drive down some main street in middle America, which was not a visual I expected from this film because you look at this box, you look at this poster, and it is so gothic, it, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
tapping into a lot of the golf the golf culture that had already been dead for like 15 years mm. oh just like coppola coppola's granddaughter like said to him oh man no golf culture is really the thing where it's at. and then he kept that in his mind and then didn't make the movie for over a decade <laughs> well that's why gia did behind the scenes stuff i guess <laughs> she had to follow through on her story <laughs> So the opening narration courtesy of Tom Waits tells us about the town of Swan Valley. And we learn details about the place where people just want to be left alone. And there's this weird clock tower with seven faces that all tell different times. It's pretty clear in this film, subtlety will not be a strong point. (laughs) No. So we find out about a mass murder that happened in the town. And the people in the town do not want to talk about it at all. And a group of Satanists live in the town who shop at Hot Topic, obviously. And they are led by a seducer of innocence named Flamingo. I got to wonder what was going on when, when Coppola named this character Flamingo. Flamingo. Oh, God. Yeah, I couldn't say. I'm, 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 really, I'm really, really baffled by a lot of this movie. <laughs> I have to say, though, at this point, I was all in because I'm like, this movie is going full tilt weird right from the start. Yes, let's do this. Satanists in a small town. I'm all for it. So in comes Val Kilmer, and he's playing the awkwardly named Hall Baltimore. <laughs> I was like, that. again, Coppola has some sort of weird list that he's pulling his names from. He's like, uh, he's like Charles Dickens. He yeah. just keeps a list of really weird, interesting names. <laughs> so he's an author of some minor renown, having written Witch Hunter, which uh, was his big claim to fame. And he's on a book signing tour that brings him to the Swan Valley Hardware Store, which is also the town bookstore. Obviously, something's odd here that we're, we've got a guy who's on a book tour and he's in a town which doesn't seem like there's a lot of people and he's signing books in a hardware store. Mm. And you know what's weird? Because here comes the sheriff from town, Bobby LaGrange, who has played with an overwhelming sense of quiet and calm by Bruce Dern. How did you enjoy this performance by Bruce Dern? I mean, Bruce Dern always brings it. And I, I like when Bruce Dern sort of brings the, the crazy. And I was... Here's the thing. This is kind of this is a really odd film, and it's got a lot of actors in it that you would expect to just go really bug nuts off the wall. You have Val Kilmer for one, who is yeah. capable of playing completely nutty. You have mm-hmm. Bruce Dern who can swing for the walls if he wants to. You have yeah, narration by Tom Waits. You have uh, you know Alden Ehrenreich who we've learned it can play pretty broad, and it's about uh, you know, all these supernatural things, and then we have. Uh, ghosts visiting people in dreams and everybody just seems really detached Val Kilmer especially nobody seems like they want to be there making the movie no it's definitely like they were all forced to be on set although Bruce Dern definitely has some stuff going on there (laughs) so he's really excited to meet Paul Baltimore because and we also we know he's a kook because he's not only the sheriff but he's also the chief purveyor of woodwork in Swan Valley which obviously we know no, no character could be both those things and not be a complete lunatic. And also starring in the scene, we have the iconic Kilmer ponytail. Oh, God. <laughs> the fact that we get to see that glorious mane in the same scene as a sheriff, we know we are getting peak Kilmer. Those two things are always there if you got Val Kilmer at his, at his best. <laughs> the sheriff tells Hall all about the mass murder in town, which although we were already told that nobody in town wants to talk about that, but I guess that was thrown right out the window. And he tells him, you want to come see to the morgue to come see a doozy. Mm. There's a cut here that made me rewind the movie a couple of times because suddenly the sheriff is about six inches from Hall's face. And it's completely insane. It's, it doesn't make any sense in the whole process of this film. You know, I actually had to check them to see who cut the film. Uh-huh. And it's interesting. There are three editors on this film. 
I have a, a story about the editing, but who are, who are the credited editors? So two of them are longtime Coppola collaborators. They worked on Dracula, your favorite film, and The Cotton Club. Uh, but the third, Kevin Bailey, he has never cut a feature film to this day, which is rather odd to cut a Coppola film and then never cut a film again. And I think what you're going to talk about, I believe what you're going to talk about is the idea that Coppola never meant for this to be a finished film. Yeah, the, this, this was actually meant to be a gimmick film, and we can get into that. And I haven't yeah. seen the gimmick. I've only seen the solid cut that they put out on home video. And that might be something that they just sort of cobbled together in a studio somewhere. It wasn't something that Coppola himself ever saw. Yeah, that's what I thought, that maybe this guy, Kevin Bailey, was brought in just to pull this together to release it on home video. Because, uh, as you mentioned, Coppola, you know, his plan was to take this film on the road and then edit it live in front of the audience, which I've never quite understood how that would work. Although supposedly he demoed it at Comic-Con where he used an iPad to pull together scenes, but it never worked. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the tech never came together. I remember that Comic-Con and I remember the tech never came together. And they gave everybody 3D glasses mm -hmm. that were actually Edgar Allan Poe masks with like 3D eyes and you held the Edgar Allan Poe face up to your face and you looked through his eyes and saw everything in 3D. I've never seen a picture of an audience doing this, but I would love to have seen that. Yeah, I'm sure you can find it somewhere, just look at like <laughs> Comic-Con 2011. I think this is an interesting idea. I, I remember hearing, oh, I forgot who said this. It might have been one of my film professors, but that a lot of older filmmakers, you know, as, as they round the other 60s and into their 70s, start becoming really enamored of new technology, new cameras, mm. uh, all, all of like the hippest new tools in the, the toolbox because they're interested in film and they're interested in the way it evolves and they're interested in shooting things in different ways. Sometimes uh, a lot of directors can be really successful shooting things in new ways. Martin Scorsese shot a film in 3D and used a lot of CGI in it. And Hugo is actually quite a good film. Yeah. And I can see Coppola, uh, David Cronenberg famously said that he really liked DVD technology when it was new because it allowed people to just sort of skip back and forth to their favorite parts in a movie. And for him, that was great. The kind of remixing it to your own content was a great way to enjoy a film. Meanwhile, someone like David Lynch really bristled at the idea and didn't refuse to include like chapter stops on his DVDs because he felt you need to watch it from beginning to end. Coppola was definitely the former camp. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to explore these new digital techniques, these new editing techniques, really figure out where film was going. And one of his tricks was, well, what if we just shoot a bunch of movie and rather than commit to a final version, just kind of mix it live. Just make it up as you go. And there's, I think there's a kind of integrity to that. I think there's certainly a weird devotion to cinema that comes from being completely extemporaneous about it. Mm. We don't have to think of a film necessarily as ever finished. I think when director's cuts started coming out and directors started you know, tinkering with their own works. Ridley Scott is, of course, the worst offender of this, but you also have people like William Friedkin who's recutting mm -hmm. The Exorcist over and over again. Trying to find the film years after the fact and changing your mind about it as you go. And Coppola decided, well, let's just, let's just do that. Let's just release a film that way mm -hmm. and turn it into this really kind of hot, exciting, live experience that would be really, really different for every audience. Yeah, it definitely shows an appreciation for the art of editing because it shows how much 
of the film is made in the cut, which most people don't appreciate because they see the, the full product in one form. They don't see all the decisions that were made. Right, right, right. And unfortunately now, that's only brought us to the Snyder Cut instead of what, you know, I think Coppola probably envisioned. Oh, right. Oh, gosh. And it, it, this is especially grievous with the Snyder Cut because that wasn't a director going back and putting their own stamp on a film. That was fans making a demand of a studio. Mm, to a film that didn't exist because obviously mm. he's now having to actually make that cut. Mm. And, uh, well, enjoy your Snyder Cut, kids. It's, it's going to be a Zack Snyder film. Yeah, you haven't seen that before. So the sheriff brings Hall to the morgue, and then we find out he wants to collaborate on a book about the murders in town. So this is our first view of that. This movie is often about writing, which is an, often is for a horror film. has some good legacy, obviously. You know, there's a lot of films about writing, you know, Misery and many others. But for the general public, films about writing don't tend to go over well. Well, because it's, it's not cinematic, is it? You can't yeah. really somebody sitting at a typewriter or at a laptop or even with pen and quill and make that exciting. Unless, of course, you have an attachment to the literature already. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where Coppola has an attachment to this idea that doesn't translate then to the general audience, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it's kind of hard to tell with this movie just because it's so scattered and strange. Mm. But I think he's trying to make some sort of comment on the creative process. Maybe it's hard to say, like how one finds inspiration and how that translates into the artwork you make and how that bleeds into the real world mm -hmm. while you're making that work. Yeah, that's definitely a, a legitimate way to view this film, as we'll see as we go along, because those things play themselves out quite clearly <laughs> along with the film, although the plot, maybe not. <laughs> so the next scene takes place in a coffee shop, and I would like to spend approximately three hours talking about it, because <laughs> I've never been so entranced by a scene so short where nothing happens. But this scene is ridiculous. There's so much in this scene that I was like, what, wait, with that? What's going on there? There's a, a sign on the wall that says, we sell newspaper, which immediately I was like, why is that, what? And then there's a badly Photoshopped photo of the Chickering Hotel. Then the shopkeeper has this bizarre reaction to when he hands her the thermos and she like smells the thermos, which is definitely something people do, right? Like people s smell other people's thermoses when they're asked to refill them, right? I, I, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> You know what? I'm baffled too. Just keep on, keep on describing this bizarro scene. And then in the back of the scene, we've got a guy, you know, just hanging out in the back, a creepy guy for half a second. Why not? We're just, no reason. He's just there. I mean, obviously, yes. Eventually we find out why that scene existed because it, it's intended to get us to the checking hotel, you know, which we now know is the site of some really bad stuff. And what do we get when we get there with uh, Hall Baltimore? He pours out a bottle for Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, an idol of his, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we haven't established that in any way, except for the fact that maybe, you know, his, because his name is Baltimore, maybe it's a pen name. But yeah, no, there's no explanation of that at that point. It's just, hey, you know, he's going to go there and lose all momentum for anything that was happening in this film. Um, I, I, feel like, I feel like a lot of this movie is spinning its wheels. Yes, absolutely. Like, in fact, every scene with Val Kilmer is kind of unnecessary to this movie. <laughs> well... Unnecessary to the movie, but necessary to our happiness, I, I will say, is not the case because there's a scene where I need to have that in my life. I think you know what I'm talking about, which is his writing inspiration scene. Uh, well, he he gets his writing inspiration <laughs> from you-know-who, yep. uh, from Edgar Allan Poe himself, yeah. played by Ben Chaplin, 
who appears in his dreams and gives him clues. Yeah, and also direct readings from his book. <laughs> yeah. Did a 14-year-old write this? <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, it's, it's really kind of on the nose. <laughs> would you say? Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, that. then this goes to my, you know, Coppola is trying to follow the orders of his goth teenage granddaughter, mm. who's, you know, saying, oh, you know, Poe is really important to goths. And he probably said, oh, yeah, I know Poe. Poe's great. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I can write Poe into my movie, no problem. So, yeah, there he is, the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, for one scene, legitimately just describes how you write in a scene with two people sitting at a table for a good 10 minutes. Yeah, gosh, it's so boring. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a writer. You're a writer. I, we love writing. Yeah. But I, 10 minutes of them talking about writing is painful. I mean, I'm not sure if that part was scripted or if the actors made it up on the spot. Uh, I, I think a big, just a big, big detriment, just to repeat myself a little bit, is how unengaged Val Kilmer is. Just if he were really in this role mm. and really playing hall baltimore in in this broad interesting sort of way uh if he had a lot more quirk and personality that would have been great but he has none of that well he's just sort of sitting there somnambulistically discussing stuff with poe and if you're in a scene with Edgar Allan Poe and Edgar Allan Poe is the lively one, something's amiss. <laughs> this is very, very true. But I will say that there is a moment where Kilmer gives us his, us his all, and I'm going to play a clip for you so we can remember this scene. The fog on the lake was like the, the straight edge razor. The fog on the lake reminds me of my first wife. It dissipated with time. I've lost my mind. And now I have a list. But now I'm suddenly turning into a black basketball player. She's she wore a she wore taffeta. I'm typing as a as a gay basketball player from the 60s. No, I like short shorts. They are revealing, but they're comfortable. It helps me jump. What the hell was that? <laughs> How wonderful. How wonderful. I mean, that has to be improvised, right? It, it, it feels like it. Um, I, I, I remember I watched and I reviewed Twix when it came out on home video back in 2013. And I was so baffled by the film I had just seen. <laughs> that I, I had to watch the special features. That's It's really rare that I would watch the special features on a DVD of just a film I just saw. Mm. Some, some of the films, like some of my favorites, I would buy like the Criterion Edition and I want to hear interviews with the director. But uh, yeah, it, in this one, I had to watch the special features just if, to see if I could get a clue as to what the heck I just watched. <laughs> and I, I, I took two things away. One, Val Kilmer was really, really, really unhappy to be there. You knew he was just there so he could say he made a film with Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. They had to shoot at this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And of course, everybody in the town was really thrilled to have this big production there. But a lot of people were coming up to Val Kilmer and saying, Val Kilmer, I love you. And he's just sort of sitting in his chair, not moving, <laughs> not really engaged with anybody. 
they're sort of smiling, saying, thank you, thank you, like trying to disappear into his chair. Mm. And the other thing I took was that the relationship between Francis Ford Coppola and Elle Fanning was uh, a, a little bit odd. Hmm. He, he was like sort of the dad on set, and she talked about, oh, he's just this nice, warm dad. I'm like, have, have you watched the movie you're in? Because he turned you into this weird vampire character. Let's talk a bit about that, that character. Virginia, who Val Kilmer meets walking in his dream, which mm-hmm. we will, what might be a dream, might not be a dream, might be inspiration, who knows? We'll try to figure that out. So Elle Fanning is cosplaying as Claire Danes from Romeo and Juliet, and they chat for a while, and we find out that there's a lot of weird stuff that happened at this Chickering Hotel, including the fact that there are 12 children buried under it. Oh my God. <laughs> And you know right away that she's one of those kids. Oh, like, yeah. It's, I mean, how could you not? <laughs> clear from the start what's going on here. It's not a big mystery. No, I mean, that's the thing about this film is that it it holds nothing back. Everything is just, I'm going to lay everything on the table, but still it's not going to make sense to you because it's all so disjointed. Yeah, it's like, uh, oh, and there's this cult across the lake, and my name is Virginia, but it sounds, but did you, you misheard it as Vampira because she's got big teeth and they put braces on it and oh wait a minute so they're definitely vampires right okay why are you treating that like that's a really big reveal we know they're definitely vampires yeah you broadcasted that (laughs) there's been no holding back that this is or a a mystery there's no you know at no point in this film is there going to be a Shyamalan style twist in there right well although and we will talk about the ending it's not a twist but I don't know what the hell happened there (laughs) so we have to get into that when we get to that point but I have to think that th- at some point in this film, did you think that this was just Coppola saying, I can do David Lynch? No, I don't think so. I don't think Coppola like, watched a David Lynch film and said, I want to do something like that. I think he's really earnestly trying something uh, that we just can't decipher. I think he might have been trying to do like a gothic fairy tale, which explains some of the weird, the weird elements, like the seven-faceted bell tower. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, it, maybe that's evocative of something like the House of the Seven Gables. And, you know, that, that he's also trying to make it really modern and that he has this sort of goth girl with, she's a vampire with Nosferatu fangs, but she has braces. So he's really trying to <laughs> throw some modern imagery. Not to be cynical about it, but it, it's kind of like the, the tampon in a teacup scene from Ghost World. Mm. where like this young artist said okay well i figured i just put a tampon in a teacup and the teacher is saying oh well that's actually pretty profound that there's a tampon in a teacup you're confronting people with with this image twixt needs that art teacher to tell us what the hell he's getting at. yeah i think he's just sort of toying around with things that sound good but i can't i can't understand what he's actually getting at. yeah there's you know, especially when towards the end, he starts almost backtracking on what he's established throughout the film, because, you know, we still have the issue of the sheriff, because at some point, the sheriff tells Hall about his idea for the book involving vampires, and an electric chair for vampires, which he has actually a little model for it, which was like, well, that's very unusual. But none of that stuff makes a lot of sense, because then there's, I think, ghosts involved, because they play a Ouija board, and the planchette like flies up in the air yeah just this just occurred to me it's it's not the ghosts it's got this little tiny haunted town it's deeply infused by edgar Allan poe and has a lot of you know dark secrets of the past and things that are buried and how children have died and how there's actually these supernatural creatures 
it's entirely possible that Coppola might have been going for something a little bit more H.P. Lovecraft-ish. That he goes to this small town and weird things are afoot because there's like cultists consorting with dark powers from beyond. And I know that's a, that's a, a big part of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, this town could be something of a hellmouth, and all these weird forces are here. And that Hall, who has made his career as a small time supernatural writer, has now stumbled into the reality of what he writes. Yeah, um, you know, I was, I was just uh, thinking about uh, one of my favorite horror movies, In the Mouth of Madness, mm-hmm. and how now that I'm thinking about it, Twixt bears some strong resemblances to that movie. It's about somebody who goes to a small New England town, they're a little bit of a skeptic, and as the, the supernatural things begin to pile up, they become a believer very slowly. Mm. Although that's hard to say about Twix because Val Kilmer is so uncommitted. True. And there's also the problem that the majority of the film takes place in what we are you know, led to believe is either, either a dream or a hallucination because the film is mostly shot in black and white with some color splashes. At least, uh, you know, the, the, the main parts of the plot and with this like kind of Sin City style. And then you eliminate the idea that this could be a reality because we're presented it as a different alt reality based on the visuals. Yeah. yeah. I think that kind of takes away if, if there's an attempt here that this, this world, this is a nexus of all these odd things and that Hall has to confront them. And I don't think that's going to work if everything happens while he's knocked out or drunk or whatever. Yeah, like, the only way he can see that stuff is in dreams. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's I, I'm, oh, gosh. I'm, I, as you can hear, I'm trying to, like, suss out this movie in real time because I'm watching it and I'm just not picking up on anything. So I think a, a discussion about Twix needs to be had. Not because it's saying important things or controversial things, just because it's it's so baffling. Yeah, I mean, because you have you have an, what could be a very interesting meta story about learning, you know, how you write and finding the inspiration for what you need to write versus what you want to write. But at the same time, you have this odd storyline with the pastor who killed all the children via drugged lemonade. Does that story even matter? That plot of the pastor, because it has no real effect on anything else. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just adding yet another layer of haunting to something that's already been established as quite haunted. Mm. Yeah, that's where I thought that perhaps this was an attempt to do like a, a Lynchian small town oddball storyline because there's so many things like the sheriff. And let's, for a moment, let's talk about the deputy because, yeah, you know, I, I worry for his health because he's always sleeping and he's always at the at the sheriff's station or the morgue, whatever mm-hmm. that place is where they keep the body, the one body that's in the film. There's a scene where you know, Hall Baltimore comes over to look at the body because he keeps wanting but not wanting to look at the body. And we'll talk a bit about why he has some issues with that. But he comes over and he gets stopped by a little kid who shows up at the morgue. What was the story with that kid? You know what? I don't even remember that scene. What happened with the kid in the morgue? So he's trying to sneak into the morgue and the sheriff is, the deputy is asleep. And this little kid knocks on the door and comes in. And I am certain that it's a night scene, that this is happening at night. And he comes over to play cards with the deputy and brings him food. And there's no explanation as to who this child is. And he's bringing him in and out, which also was like, what is going on here? Because there's no way this small little podunk town has an in-and-out or that this kid could get access to an in-and-out in a, in a nearby town because he's walking around on foot. 
I don't under, again, this is one of those elements where I don't understand why it's in this film. And he's in several scenes in this movie. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Here, here's my guess. Um, Coppola had maybe, like, he was going to mix this live. Maybe there's subplots explaining a lot of this stuff. Hmm. Or just, like, expanding on the details of the world. And it's entirely possible that Coppola, even beyond that, had a much more complex vision as to what was going on in this world. Maybe he had this big idea as to where this kid came from, where he's getting the in and out, his relationship with the sheriff. Maybe it was a lot more explicitly explained in another cut of the movie, but he either failed to allow that into the final cut of the film, or he was so wrapped up, and this is what I'm guessing happened, he was so wrapped up in his own vision of whatever was going on in this town that he failed to communicate a lot of the basics that felt really natural to him. Mm. Yeah, because that kid's in the Ouija board scene, so he must play a relatively you know, large role in this town, the fact that he's allowed to be involved in that, mm. at least in this town as far as the story goes. I mean, you have two people here who have seen this film several times. I mean, at least myself, I know you reviewed it originally, you've, and now you've watched it again, and we can't really figure out a lot of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think this is like a David Lynch film where, you know, David Lynch famously said that he loves mysteries, but he hates the solutions to mysteries mm. because, you know, he likes the idea of being lost in a mystery and found that to be far more fascinating than the idea of finding the answer to a mystery. Mm. Like the J.J. Abrams mystery box. Yeah, like J.J. Abrams mystery box, those are meant to have solutions. He never plans out those solutions, so he gets to kind of explore until you find something that sounds good yeah he's more he's more entertained by the idea yeah yeah I, david lynch is not interested in solutions he mm. doesn't ever want the box to be opened he just wants you to be terrified by whatever's inside and i think he does a really good job of that i, I i'm not exactly sure which of these uh coppola was trying to get at yeah let's talk a bit about paul baltimore's background because there's a lot that they that we get revealed a lot as the film goes along including the fact that he has a wife who is played, interestingly enough, by Joanne Wally Kilmer. Well, she's Joanne Wally at the time of this film, who is obviously Val Kilmer's ex-wife. This was an odd decision to put his ex-wife as his wife, who has a combative relationship with him in this film. Uh, you know what? Maybe they have a good relationship. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're okay with one another. Maybe they've reached a point where they're kind of simpatico. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's just, it just feels like it's a little too like sensitive to put two people who have broken up a marriage in a situation where their marriage seems like it's breaking up. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're looking for authenticity, there it is. I felt more human connection between those two than I did between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and Eyes Wide Shot or something. True. Uh, although I did not feel like this was Wally's best performance. Uh, no, no, no. Just, just like everybody else. She's uncommitted. And then we find out that Hall Baltimore's daughter died. And he has some definitely some issues, some guilt related to her death. And the thing that I found most interesting about this, if you didn't know this, the daughter's death in the film is exactly the same as Francis Ford Coppola's son's death. Yeah. And that's an odd decision to make. Because, not because, you know, he can't work out whatever feelings he has about his son. That's fine. That's his decision. It's a personal film to him. That's A-OK. -okay. The problem is, how many people actually watching the film knew that? And what does that give to the film if you don't know that that's how his son died? Uh, all it gives is something to Coppola himself. You know, filmmakers often just explore their own issues via their own films. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, 
it gets a little insular though after a while. Yeah, I mean, especially when you consider then how meta this film is about the idea of how you get ideas and inspiration for writing. It almost, it's a snake eating its own tail at this point because he's doing a film about a character who needs inspiration, who gets it from his daughter's death, getting it from his son's death. It collapses in on itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, this film isn't graceful enough to explore something that deeply, unfortunately. Um, if he's talking about inspiration and the way our authors get inspiration, especially the way horror authors get inspiration and how they're drawn to dark and grim things, he didn't give the main character enough uh, character, enough backstory, and enough personality. And he didn't cast somebody who was really exciting enough to communicate his sadness and his panic. Mm. Can you imagine if instead of Val Kilmer, it was somebody like John Cusack? Oh, yeah. And John Cusack can play a really panicky guy. In fact, look at the film 1408. He plays kind of a similar character. Mm. He's, he's, not a, he's not an author, but he's like a paranormal investigator in that movie. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of at the end of his rope. And part of the big twist in that movie is that he's been looking for ghosts because he wants to find his own dead family. Mm-hmm. But in that film, John Cusack is full of panic and fear and skepticism. And he runs the gamut of emotions. Yeah. What does Val Kilmer's character, what does Hall Baltimore feel in this movie? Like, what's, what's his point of view? We don't get any of that. No, we get one scene where he cries, which, as we've learned throughout the series, is not Val Kilmer's strong point. He does not cry well on screen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that might be Kilmer's ego at, at work there. I think he prefers playing characters that are, I don't know, just a little more stoic, maybe a little less emotionally... Uh, vulnerable. Mm. I'm not. I'm, I've never heard him actually say anything like this in in interviews. But he does tend to play strong figures. Oh yeah, that's his. That's his suit. I mean, he is confident, cocky. He is fully in control in his best performances of what's going on around him. Yeah, yeah. So now he's asked to play play somebody who's kind of wounded, and that might go against just. It might not be even something he can play. Yeah, it's definitely not his strong point. It, it's something he just might not be capable of, or he's just not interested in exploring. You know, he's, he seems much more at ease when he's playing someone like, you know, Batman or the Saint. Mm. If he had his career happened 20 years later, he would have been an MCU superstar. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and God knows he's probably trying to break into the MCU every day. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> Please, like, I, can, I can play, I don't know, who I'm going to cast. I want to play the new Galactus. Give that to me. Oh, man. That's an interesting role. <laughs> okay, but you got to wear the helmet. No, no helmet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's the problem. you got to have the ponytail sticking out. <laughs> Galactus with a ponytail. That's the one I want to play. We also need to talk about, you know, as you said, Alden Ehrenreich is in this film. And he plays flamingo what uh, and this is his second outing with with coppola because he was in tetra as well yes but this one i mean this this scene with him on the island oh, I, God. I don't even know what to say about it because visually a very interesting character you know with his face makeup and everything you know kind of like nazi youth meets you know burning man meets marilyn manson it's it's very uh, it's striking and he's you know detachedly quoting baudelaire and you know he's definitely that kind of cult leader character but then that goes away and he's expressing genuine concern for the girl and then then later on when virginia who's trying to escape from the pastor he saves her 
and then bites her and makes her a vampire, which I thought we were trying at we as the film audience and film together as a you know, unit. We're trying to play it cool that he may be a vampire, may not be a vampire, because it seemed to me that this character Flamingo was all about the idea of villainizing younger generations by an older generation, the way you'd see in the 1950s Youth Gone Wild film. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's accurate. So then why did, we, why did we even have to play that he wasn't a vampire? Because it didn't matter. You know, he had this like bacchanalia that on this island. Why not just let him be a vampire? Well, I, I guess if you just let him be a vampire, you start, maybe he, uh, they thought that the audience would start asking questions. Why is there a vampire village? Why would nobody talk about this vampire village? How many people of the, the town do they eat on a daily basis? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's if you make it a secret, then you know, you, you're not really asking those questions as much. Until the film's over, at least. Then you start asking questions and there's no way anybody's asking questions during this film oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> at one point hall baltimore goes up to the clock tower the this odd seven-faced clock tower with father guido sarducci which you know classic casting there i don't know how that happened <laughs> well it's, it's, it's not guido sarducci it's Don novello but yeah 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 but you know who he is <laughs> so you know, they get up into clockwork and he finds a girl on the gurney and it's his daughter who starts saying, come with us, daddy. It's very all strange. What I want to talk about here is the fact that this is one of two 3D scenes in this film and neither of them benefits from it. They even removed the 3D from the film for the home video release. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was going to be one of the big selling points at one point. Yeah. I mean, when they showed it in festivals, they actually had a thing come up on the screen with you know, 3D glasses saying, here's the time. I have to feel like this feel must have been a massive disappointment for Coppola's film. A, the editing didn't work, and then the 3D didn't work. In the end, I don't know if he, if he you know, he's not, I've never heard him talk about the film, but I have to think maybe he just disowned this film entirely. I, I think... <sighs> I think the experiment he was going for, like he didn't even really know what kind of experiment he was trying to, to make when he made this film, but what he got definitely wasn't it. Mm. So it, it, I think he's just a little embarrassed that not only didn't it work, but it kind of revealed that he didn't really have an idea here. Yeah, and that's especially true when you get to the end, because and let, we can talk about the end now, I think. Hall goes up to the sheriff's office and finds that the deputy and the sheriff are both dead. The sheriff's body is hanging with a sign that says guilty in blood written on it. Mm -hmm. Hall goes and checks out the body that he finally gets around to looking at in the morgue. And it's Virginia. I mean, who didn't know that that was Virginia, really? I mean, sitting there with the stake in her chest. Obviously, she's the vampire in town. It was a given. Mm -hmm. And then he removes the stake and there's a volcano of blood. (laughs) You ever see Dracula dead and loving it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. This, I mean, this is the most ridiculous moment in this film, which has a lot of ridiculous moments. Like as we played that clip of Kilmer doing those imitations, my God, this moment when he gets covered in blood, Virginia is alive. She pops off her braces, which is an interesting choice. And then attacks Hall. And immediately we cut to him in the office with David Hamer, who I love. I'm so happy that David Pamer's in this movie. Anytime I get to see David Pamer, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. David, David Pamer is a good old standby. I really, I really loved him in uh, Get Shorty. Mm, I love him. In, I mean, Carpool. I mean, that's not a great movie, and I love David Pamer in Carpool. <laughs> we are driving in a pool. 
So Hall gives his book that, that he had promised Pamer to Pamer, mm. and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> the, well, the, well, the book's written. That's that's the end. The mystery's been solved. We, what? What do you get? What? <laughs> we went from Hall being attacked by a vampire to him in an office handing off a manuscript with no reference to is he a vampire? Did it? Was it a dream? No nods, no anything. First of all, they're in the office, and it's mid. It's like just towards the end of day, so there. He was in the sunlight. He's not, can't be a vampire. I'm sorry, like that doesn't work. So, what happened in that moment? Was that all a dream? And if so, why was that the end of the dream? Uh, well, here, here's the thing. This is, in a way, this is a story about a writer getting his mojo back. Right? He's discovering this mystery. He's looking to the figures that inspired him, Edgar Allan Poe, and trying to find a way to become a writer again. And in that way, it kind of makes sense that the last act of the movie would be he either he writes the book or he doesn't. And mm. here he actually got to write the book. Great. And so that story, mystery solved. Dust off your hands, go home, and don't think about anything. Although we do get a text coda, which... I'm very happy when I get a text code in a film because it flashes back to some of my favorite films. And we find out the book did okay business, not great business, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> the sheriff's suicide was linked to other killings in the town. So that actually happened? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not? Denise never sold Hall's copy of Leaves of Grass, so I assume they're still together, which good for them, you know. And then Flamingo was never seen again. And that's it. And he rides off with El Fanning we believe or whatever <laughs> happened because last time we saw Elle Fanning, she was attacking Val Kilmer. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, I know you have no answers for me because there are no answers to this film. If, if you are the type of movie, like I, I just saw a movie this week called uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's a Charlie Kaufman mm. movie. And it's really kind of mysterious and symbolic and kind of surreal. And that's the kind of film that invites a positive sort of discussion because you might be taking different emotional things from it. This is just a mess. Yeah. It's just a big piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked if they had released all the footage. Do you remember the, the I don't know if you know about this, the, in the 90s, I believe it was, Steven Spielberg put out a game called Director's Chair. I yeah, remember Director's Chair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got a bunch of footage and you had to assemble a film. They should have just released all of Twixt footage and said, here, do what you must. <laughs> and the art that would have come from that would have been amazing. Or here, uh, they perhaps should have released this as now that the technology is here, it's one of those Netflix choose your own adventure things. Absolutely. Because uh, like Black Mirror did that film Bandersnatch, which was a choose your own adventure film. And they've done it with a lot of the kids stuff as well. Like there's a, a Carmen Sandiego animated film, which is a choose your own adventure. There's a Captain Underpants film with a choose your own adventure. J just do that now. Yeah. Let people explore through the footage as they might. But of course, Twixt is such a bad thing and had no actual impact that they're not going to do that. It's not worth no. the trouble. But I mean, Coppola can do this on his own, right? I mean, like Netflix isn't going to turn down Coppola. <laughs> if he was like, hey, I just want to give you all this footage and go nuts with it. I guess we'll see how well that new cut of Godfather 3 does. Mm. And, uh, or just hang in, hang in there for the American Zoetrope streaming service. <laughs> Could you imagine if Godfather 3 brings us a new cut of Twixt? What kind of world would we be living in? Oh, hey, the world is a twisted place. <laughs> Twixted place. Bum -bum -bum. Yeah. 
<laughs> so we've talked a lot about the film, uh, but let's hear from the man himself. It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. So our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry. He, uh, he wrote uh, a couple things about Twix, but here's one I want to read. When Francis Ford Coppola calls, actors come running. Because I had once refused to make that run, years earlier when I had turned down The Outsiders, this time I ran like hell. It was an especially strange call because it involved starring in a faux horror film written, produced, and directed by Francis. It was Twixt, a film in which he'd asked me to star as Hall Baltimore, a fourth-rate horror novelist down on his luck. The lead actress and his wife in the film was a woman who had captured Francis's fascination and admiration, Joanne Wally. The fact that she would play my wife, who was unhappy in our marriage, was not a drawback. We had resolved our custody dispute to the point where the kids were spending time with both of us. I actually liked the idea of working with Joanne again. By the way, Francis is unabashedly bonkers for Joanne, who he told me he thought of as a modern-day Clara Bow. When it came to marital discord, Joanne and I certainly knew the territory. The additional fact that Edgar Allan Poe, inventor of the horror genre, would be following me around in ghostly form was also attractive. I'd have some great scenes with the brilliant Bruce Dern, and because Francis was doing it on a shoestring budget entirely at his own property in Clear Lake, a hundred miles north of San Francisco, it looked like an easy shoot. It wasn't. Thanks be to Val. So i um, leave a little cliffhanger on there. If, if you ever want to check out the book, there's a whole story about what happened on the set with Twix. Oh my yeah, it's, it's something. <laughs> I'm going to read that whole chapter. The, the, the funny thing is his book is very short and there are many chapters based on the films that he's in, but the talk of the films is very brief. And then he goes off into wild tangents about many other things besides the films that he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd be interested in re in reading that because maybe he could give us a little bit of a clue. But if he's going off on tangents, maybe he doesn't know what it is either. Yeah, I would recommend uh, if you can get it from your library the audiobook version, which includes Will Forte reading. Oh, fine. Yeah, it's definitely enter entertaining. Is there anything we didn't talk about about the film that you wanted to cover? No, I don't think so. I think yeah, just the fact that it's it's just this big mishmash of weird ideas. Uh, that it that it sucks. I think that's the most striking thing about it. <laughs> that it seems to be a pathetic attempt for an, uh, an older man trying to understand the things that his granddaughter might be into, mm. and all this weird vampire stuff. It's interesting that Val Kilmer referred to it as, what, did he say it was a faux horror film? Yeah, faux horror film. So, like, not not a real horror film, kind of a fake horror film. Yeah, there's not a lot of horror in this movie, which is interesting, especially considering what it looks like. There's not a lot of horror, but at the same time, it's it's clearly not like a send-up of horror. Like, he's not making fun of gothic romances. No. I, I know you can see that he's really inflected by stuff like The Turn of the Screw and Hawthorne and Poe, you know. He's, he's trying to get at something kind of literary, but at the same time, there's this weird sense of humor to it like not a not comedy but a sense of humor a kind of winking silliness yeah that undercuts any kind of a uh, gothic mystery that the film might possess yeah like the moments with the shopkeeper and her husband in the hotel yeah yeah, yeah and you know, little little moments of strangeness that are meant to sort of get you turning your head a little sideways and smirking a little bit which yeah, like completely undoes all of all of like the Poe references and the fact that we have a the main plot involves the priest murdering children. <laughs> yeah, they don't really care much about that. Just kind of a side note. 
So we've had our say. Let's uh, hear what other people have to say. Come, children. Let's explore the kills and valleys. So Kills and Valleys, the best and worst reviews of this film and Val Kilmer's performance in it. Positive reviews of Twix that are not in large supply. Can you believe it? Uh, who'd have thought it? <laughs> I will say the French film publication Cahier du Cinema ranked it as the third best film in 2012. Wow, all right. I don't know what, what to say about that. I mean, I admit it wasn't the strongest year in film. I'll give it that. But you know, you have to be able to pull out seven films that were better than Twix. I don't care what your 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 method of ranking these films is. There are at least seven films that are higher than Twix out there that year. Well, it, clearly somebody was trying to get like uh, trying to pull pull attention to Twix. Yeah. yeah. As a critic, when when we do those top ten lists at the end of the year, sure, we don't necessarily author those things for, uh, for posterity. Mm-hmm. Uh, most critics understand that these top 10 lists serve as recommendations. So a lot of critics will eschew some of the more obvious choices, the ones that are getting talked about a lot, the ones that are definitely some of the better films of the year, and we'll leave them off of our top 10 lists because we want to leave put in some space for something a little bit more odd, something mm. a little bit more daring, some, something a little bit more artistic. And something that has a bad reputation that we're trying to maybe bolster. Mm. Kind of like John Waters' top 10 each year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's definitely some politicking going on with these top 10 lists. That's all I can assume is, is going on when somebody puts twits on their list. Third best film. Oh. <laughs> Variety's Rob Nelson wrote about the film. Twix registers at a refresh- as a refreshingly loose and even silly work from a major filmmaker in the autumn of his oeuvre. Moreover, the pick comes closer to the ill-fated one from the heart to the director's long-stated ideal of iconoclastic genre filmmaking within a controlled studio-free environment. Particularly in the dream scenes, one has the sense that Coppola, secure in his legacy, would rather push for self-reflexive humor and a handful of haunting images than for another hard-fought masterpiece. Now, you know what, I, I think that might be a big part of uh, why it came out the way it did. He didn't, I mean, Coppola is an old guy. A lot of mm. filmmakers don't want to have to push and fight and work really hard for every work they do anymore. Yeah, uh, you've done so, it already. <laughs> yeah, I've done all of the fighting. I just want to chill out and make something. I think that was, was like David Lynch's approach to Inland Empire. Mm. I'm talking about David Lynch a lot just because I, I know a lot about him and I like his work, but... Uh, <laughs> Not, not that Twixt is comparable to Inland Empire, but... Uh, no, 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 no. Unless you're Cahiers de Cinema. Yeah, well, you know, Cahiers de Cinema, they have to have high, high, strange standards. Otherwise, they're not Cahiers de Cinema. <laughs> yeah. yeah, David Lynch wanted to shoot something like Inland Empire in his backyard on digital cameras. He didn't want to have to worry about all of the hard work that was required to look at dailies and develop the film strips and go back to the screening room and watch everything, you know, days after the fact. He wanted to just have an idea and make it that day. Yeah. So he just got out a little digital camera, he called up Laura Dern and said, come film something in my backyard. Laura Dern said, okay. And there you go. He's made his move. Wouldn't that be nice to just be like, hey, Laura Dern, come over to my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't so work what for am me. I you're, you're a Polish sex worker. Go. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Kirk Honeycutter, the Hollywood reporter, was far less interested in Twix, describing it as Coppola's silliest work. One can reflect on what the young Coppola 
with his masterful camera work and vivid imagination might have done with such an opportunity. Unfortunately, the present day one produces only tepid and tired imagery that would not earn high marks in any film school. Oh, harsh. <laughs> you were taking a shot to Coppola, man. Like, you know, you know, <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> You're not doing well if somebody's taking, coming at you like that. But that's what the pros had to say. Let's hear what the unwashed masses on Amazon t- said about Twixt. Oh, 158 reviews for Twixt, and just under half of them were five stars. Oh, my God. <laughs> this reviewer makes some interesting adjective choices. I love this film. It's strange and strangely beautiful. Grotesque and erotically charged performances from a great cast playing oddball characters in an engrossing ghost story. Twist is like a liminal dreamscape between nightmare and fantasy and a guest ghost appearance by Edgar Allan Poe and assorted vampires. I would not call this film erotically charged in any way. No, and if, and if you think it's erotically charged, then uh, I, I'm going to step away from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What, what exactly was doing it for you with this film? <laughs> <laughs> this person brings an interesting hot take. Twixt requires an attention span of more than two minutes. I personally thought that it was excellent film. I have always enjoyed Francis Ford Coppola's smaller films. Tetra is a masterpiece. The Conversation, The Outsider's Rumblefish. These are my favorite Francis Ford Coppola films. Twixt is on par with those. <laughs> oh, is it now? Okay. That's insane. If you're a Francis Ford Coppola fan and you're pulling out the conversation and the outsiders and you're saying that Twixt is on par with them, like what head injury did you you know, have at that moment? Because that doesn't make any sense. It's possible they're just comparing like the, like sort of the budget and the scope. <laughs> like, oh, this, this, you're right. You know what? In, in that regard, yes, this is like those movies. It's a movie made by Francis Ford Coppola. In that case, yes, they're all the same. They're all the same. They're all made by, well, they're just, they're, uh, they're more intimate stories, I suppose. I guess, but oof. <laughs> the next one, I don't know if it's unbiased. I've got to love this film. My granddaughter plays the dead daughter in flashbacks and is the dead body on the gurney. Is, <laughs> isn't movie work romantic? Thanks, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Regarding Val Kilmer's performance, Val Kilmer has obviously hit rock bottom as an actor. That's from a five-star review of this movie. Who <laughs> <laughs> describes the, the lead actor as hitting rock bottom. Good job there. <laughs> Good to see Val acting in a horror, but not horror. Wait, what? <laughs> Good to see Val acting in a horror, but not horror. In, so, in a, okay. Somebody who is just as confused as us watching this film, obviously. <laughs> and then somebody said, absolutely wonderful, Val Kilmer at his very best. Somebody who's only seen one Val Kilmer film. Yeah, somebody who, who wasn't very fond of Spartan. <laughs> Just 9% of the Amazon reviews were one star, but they made themselves heard. <laughs> I am writing this review while watching the movie, so I guess that says a lot about it. With the people involved in making this movie, this is such a disappointment. I'm not even sure there's a storyline here, which probably doesn't help. The actors don't seem convinced either. I regret paying for this. <laughs> one star. <laughs> there... <laughs> This one, I love the Fanning girls, but they should both make a note to remind themselves to not be in any more movies with Val Kilmer. Is that a problem? <laughs> was, was Dakota Fanning in something with, with Val Kilmer? I don't remember that, but hey, this guy's got a real real defense for uh, the Fanning girls, which uh, creeps me out either way. <laughs> Why are you referring to them as the Fanning girls? They're, they're both fine actresses in their own right. Exactly. <laughs> Again, very creepy guy. So we have a decision to make. With or without Val, 
Does Val Kilmer make or break this film? Val Kilmer breaks this film. <laughs> he, he is not committed to this rule. No. If you had cast a really weird actor, not even a known actor, just a really strange actor, uh, like I said, John Cusack could have mm. played this straight and intense. Uh, Nicolas Cage could have played something really, like maybe a, a little bit more energetic and off the wall. Heck, oh, even Travolta could have done something <laughs> with this role. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'll defend Travolta. He's made some weird decisions, but he's, oh, yeah. he generally kind of knows what he's doing when he's acting. <laughs> he's made a lot of fingers, and he's given in some really bad performances, but at least he's trying. Val Kilmer is not trying. He's doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I, yeah, obviously, I will be a Val Kilmer apologist forever since I am hosting a Val Kilmer podcast, but I can't imagine there's a performer who would have made this film. Well, yeah. No matter what, you're still in this film. You'd have mm. a better performance, perhaps, but you're still in this movie, which is a big <laughs> problem. That said, that imitation scene, chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of KilmerCast. I'd like to thank you, Whitney, for joining me to chat about this narrative jumble that we experienced. And I'd like to know if you have anything you'd like to plug. Oh, well, you know, just go head on over to uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. That's where you can find uh, me and Mr. William Viviani flapping our gums every which way about whatever crosses our mind. We have pretty much a podcast every day at this point. Uh, And, you know, they're all, all quite good. Uh, I occasionally contribute in writing to IGN. Uh, you'll just find me gadding about town, mostly on the social medias. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, I encourage you to contact me and buy one of my audio dramas. I wrote a couple mm. of those recently, and those, uh, I'm selling those piecemeal to anybody who contacts me on social media, and I think you might enjoy those. Things. So go ahead, hit me up, and give me some money. <laughs> and I would like to <laughs> chime in on your plug definitely check out cancel too soon it is my personal favorite of the critically acclaimed podcasts and also check out there's an episode of your critically acclaimed which is part of the patreon that uh you guys do on the iron giant check out that episode fantastic definitely must listen thank you yeah we were both really fond of that movie so it was fun to talk about yeah, that, you could, you, it came through for sure. Uh, as a fan of the Iron Giant myself, you know, I loved every minute of it. For myself, I'd like to say um, we have some huge elections coming up. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to see what you can do to help turn out the vote. One way you can do that is by visiting mobilize.us, uh, where you can find out how you can volunteer on the local and national level, including phone banking, which is a super easy way to help. Uh, I've done it myself, and there's definitely something satisfying about reaching out to people and reminding them about what's at stake. In our next episode, we'll be taking a look at one of Kilmer's more iconic roles as he plays the Lizard King in 1991's The Doors. In the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, or comments to KilmerCast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at KilmerCast. For myself and my guest, Whitney Seibel, thank you for listening, and remember to keep it Kilmer. Kilmer.